Thank you, Eric. You are way too kind, and I can say the same thing about you. I am thankful you're here. I'm thankful for a godly man and a friend to always be able to call and to get on the other end of the phone. There's only a handful of people that I can think of that when I call them ministry friends that brighten my day more than Eric does. Just the cheerfulness, the joy in his voice, and I so love this brother and appreciate him. I appreciate what God has done and is doing through you all here at Fellowship. Such a blessing and a testament to God's grace and God's power uh, here in this place, and so I am thankful for that. I want to invite you this evening, if you would, to turn with me to John chapter 6 as we begin this evening. I feel that in speaking, when I am speaking tonight, Eric is part of the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given to me not too long ago. Now, before you get up and leave, it was given to me by an anesthesiologist. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, you know, Brian, you and I, we basically do the same thing. Think about that. It'll hit you on the, we both put people to sleep. And so I said, thank you, I appreciate that. And preaching last on a Friday night, I hope that is not a prophecy that comes true anytime soon. And so the word of God is enough to keep our attention and to keep us moving and motivated, I believe, tonight. And so would you look with me at John's gospel? We're going to look at the sixth chapter tonight, and I want to just begin by looking at verses 66 down through verse 69. As a result of this, John records, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we endeavor to consider this area of Scripture as the foundation for a biblical church. Father, we come before you tonight. We ask that as we have already heard so eloquently and so clearly from your word, that you would reveal and magnify yourself, that you would be exalted in our thoughts, that you would be expanded in our affections, and that we would increasingly reflect our love for you more and more by our worship and our obedience to you. And we ask this all because of the change and the powerful work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Word of God in us and through us. Be glorified by your own Word now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If the church, which is the consideration of our time together this weekend, has needed anything in every age in every place that it has existed. It is a clear and undiluted view of God. And Eric so well presented that view of God to us from Psalm 86 just moments ago. We need to behold the greatness and the grandeur of God. There are too many other smaller things, lesser things, little things that vie for our attention. But the one thing 
that the church of God needs is a clear vision of God. We are, after all, his people. This is his body. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is our light and our salvation and the defense of our life. Christ is our king. We are his subjects. Christ is our head and we are his body. We must be maintained as a biblical church, as a faithful church, as as a church at all. We must be sustained and maintained in our view of God, established and built up, as Eric has so well said, on the rock of the person of God, on all that he is. But in order to be built up on such a powerful God, in order to to be on that foundation, we need an equally powerful source in order to see that accomplished in our life. That source must be equal in all that it is to the majesty and the weight and the glory of God himself. It must be perfect. It must be as God is unchanging. It must in every way reveal all that God is. And in the end, it must produce the very life of God in us. And so I feel somewhat like Peter. Knowing that this is what we need, and turning to our Lord, where else would we go? Where else would we go for this source, for this foundation? What is it that we could possibly seek for that would keep us here anchored upon the rock of who God is? There is only one place, and that is the foundation of the very self-revelation of God himself, the Scriptures. The Bible is more than a book. The Bible is the very self-telling and the self-revealing of God himself about himself. That, that is why I am never overly thrilled when I hear that some school district somewhere has instituted the study of the Bible as a class. Not because I don't rejoice that the Word of God is being opened and read, because it will do its work, but because... In the hands of carnal men, it is only literature, but we know it is more than that, don't we? We know that it is the living, breathing self-revelation of God, God revealing himself to us. The tragedy in our day, and you know this and I know this, and it in part explains why we're here tonight in this church, surrounded by these men Surrounded by others from other churches that love and preach the Bible. The tragedy is that in seeking the end of claiming to desire to know God, too many have erred from the path alone that leads to God, and that is his word. They have substituted too many other things, and the source matters. The end result will only be as good as the source from which it sprang. And as the Westminster Shorter Catechism informs us in its first question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is what? 
to glorify God and to enjoy him. How can you glorify God if you don't know him? How can you possibly reap the joy of God if you do not glorify him? You can't. And so we must be built upon the right foundation that points us to and reveals the very person of God himself. Not what I think about him, not what you think about him, not even what the Bible writers thought about him, but as God is telling us about himself, he's revealing who he is. That is the fundamental source and essence of Scripture. It is revealed truth that in the end, because of the nature that is contained within it, will produce redemption and salvation. That God would gather to himself a people. I was telling our church recently that God is the one being, the one thing, if you will, in life for which there are no superlatives. You cannot find a superlative strong enough to equal a right explanation of who God is. And so where those superlatives fail, the Bible goes to exponentials. Holy, holy, holy. And where superlatives and where exponentials fail, we go to multiplication of voices. And that is the point. To fill all of heaven with men and women and boys and girls who tell of the greatness and the glory of God. Why? They've seen it in the word of God. And it alone has changed them and pierced them and brought them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But here in our text this evening, Peter asks two questions and both must be asked. Go back to verse 60 with me, if you will. John records that many of his disciples, when they heard this, now John is using the term disciple very loosely, if not sarcastically. When they heard the true teaching of Jesus They said to themselves, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And they left. This is the context in which Jesus asked Peter the questions. The first is a penetrating question about our relationship to Jesus Christ. Do you want to leave me? Do you want to leave me? Not do you want to just merely deconstruct some emanation of what you claim to be faith. No, do you want to leave the person of God in the face of Jesus Christ? The people have left. They didn't like what I had to say. They liked the miracles. They did not appreciate what I had to say. Will you leave me as well? That's the first question. The second question is the one Peter asked, where would we go? Where would we go? To leave the Lord Jesus, Peter recognizes, is to leave the path of life. Do you want to live? Do you want to evade the judgment of God? Then heed the very word of God coming forth from the word himself. And Peter recognizes that to leave Jesus, the very word of God incarnate, is to leave life. Therefore, we must stay by the word. Peter recognizes this. And in staying near the word, we hear the word, the life-giving words that come from Jesus 
own lips. So listen, brothers and sisters, if the church of the living God, the very body of Christ, is to be what she claims to be, she must always stay rooted in the life-giving stream that never grows stagnant, but is always flowing with the word of the living God, the revelation of God that breathes life. Where else are you going to go? What else is there in the world that has the capability or the potential to do that? What else are you going to offer a lost and dying world? You have nothing. In fact, you have less than nothing. If you do not have the word of God, these are the right questions to ask. Where else could we go? What else would we offer? What else do we have? As the new hymn says, quoting the Heidelberg Catechism, Christ, as he is revealed in the word, is our only hope in life and in death. Not only must we ask the right questions, as Peter does here, we must make sure that we give the right answers. And I know that in some sense, I am preaching to the choir tonight. But perhaps you're here and unsure of that. I hope, with the Lord's help, to make that clear and to convince you that we must believe all of Scripture. We must believe and hold to all of Scripture alone to the exclusion of everything else. Not only must we do those things, but we must believe and subscribe and build ourselves upon all of Scripture, all of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, for there alone is God revealed. Everything else is a mirage and a lie. I want to give two answers to Peter's pressing questions. What else would we offer? Where else would we go? Why must we stay rooted in the Scripture? Number one, because of what Scripture is. Because of what the Scripture is. Scripture is the great delimiter of the church. Scripture is is the very force and the very power that sets the proper boundaries for the church. It sets our limits It demarcates where we get off and where we get on. It defines everything about us and everything for us. It is what causes us to be living spiritual beings and a living spiritual organism. The Word of God is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the deepest part of man. Scripture defines what it is to live. Scripture defines what it is to be spiritual. And if the church is neither living nor spiritual, what is it? It's not only nothing, it's worse than nothing. It's a lie, it's a hoax. And we need the word of God to set our boundaries and to define us as living spiritual beings. How does it do that? It does that because of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can turn there with me if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 3, you know where I'm going. 
Paul writes to this young pastor and he says to him, all scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, still being written alike, all scripture, as a reformer said, tota scriptura, all of scripture, not just the parts we like, but all of scripture sets the foundation. Why? Because it is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, inspired is one of those words that is tremendously unhelpful in our day, because everything is inspiring. And if everything's inspiring, then nothing is inspiring. It is overused. It's like kids today. Everything's awesome, epic, to the point that, is it really epic? Is it really awesome? Does it really inspire awe? The the, the word inspired or inspiration is so unhelpful anymore because it's lost its meaning. And current usage. Today it's to inspire you, to move you towards something. Can mean anything or nothing at all. It's malleable, it's changeable. But when we read Paul's words here and the usage of the term inspired, Paul is not trying to move us towards something. Paul is informing all of us as the church. God has moved upon us. That is a vast difference. God has moved upon us by breathing out on us his very self-revelation, which, by the way, he is not obligated to do, which makes it even more astounding. God didn't have to speak to me one whit, but he revealed everything that I need for life and for godliness no, God breathed out. He, the, the word is literally spired out. Spiration. <sighs> Very breath. Miriam Webster, in looking this word up to see how it was used in modern context, we don't hear a lot about spiration today. We may go to the doctor and blow into a spirometer to gauge the health of our lungs and how well we are breathing. But we don't often talk about this act of spiration, breathing out. And so Webster defines it this way, an obsolete term. The action of breathing as a creative or life-giving function of deity. I'd say Webster got it right. I'd say the church needs a lot more of this to focus on what Scripture is, God breathes out. He spires out. What does he spire out? Is it mere words? Can a a right view for a church of the Word of God upon which we are built be relegated to mere word studies? Is it just stories? of Old Testament saints and heroes of the faith? Is is it formulaic doctrine? 
No. When God spires out, he breathes out of all that he is. We get God in the word of God. It's not just facts. It's not just stories. It's not just language. It is most certainly not just literature. It is the very giving of God himself to lost humanity who once knew him and rejected him based on what we saw in him and we hated it. But God in grace comes back and he breathes into the nostrils of his chosen people, breath of life yet again. Grace upon grace. This is what we are built upon. And so when we look at scripture, we may not look at the word of God as merely optional. One of many sources nor may we look at it as sterile, existing in words or stories or academia only. When God breathes out, brothers and sisters, he is giving us who he is. He is offering himself to us that we might know him and his son and come to a saving knowledge of Christ and thus restored back into right relationship to the Godhead. He breathes out all that he is to us so that we might breathe in by faith all that he has revealed about himself. When we breathe out, we learn much about ourselves. Medical science now uses human breath to measure metabolic function among other very key indicators of one's overall health. We learn about ourselves and we learn about God in the very place that God breathed out. When someone speaks, when they spire out a revelation of themselves, it tells you everything you need to know. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 12, 34, in condemning the religious leaders of his day, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil Speak what is good. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented in his classic work, Preaching and Preachers, and said this, I can forgive a man almost anything so long as he gives me a sense of God, a sense of what is here in this book. We can only give a sense of God as the preacher of the word, as the church of Jesus Christ. We can only give that sense. So long as we are faithful to the source in which God has revealed himself, the word of God. Just as there is no physical life apart from the creative acts of God, so there is no spiritual life apart from the creative acts of God through his word. And thus, there is no church apart from the word of God. No church 
where the word of God is not opened and read. No church where the word of God is not opened and preached. No church where the word of God is not the basis and the pillar of its counseling. No church where the people do not dwell in unity and love the word of God, both to hear it and to speak it to one another. That is why the apostle Paul says, sing to one another in psalms. What are psalms? Inspired scripture. It's a supernatural work of God that produces a supernatural result that is beyond the sphere of men. You don't get the church because you have savvy church planters. You don't get the church because you have savvy program directors. You get the church of God, the living church of God, the very body of Christ, because the word is at work among us. a supernatural work relating to God. Supernatural. Outside of man's ability. Outside of that which is usual or normal, Webster says. This is the word of God. It is supernatural and it's giving, it is supernatural in its work. It does what no man can do. And churches without the word of God in possession, in proclamation, and in application are no church at all. That's why the reformers were keen to make as one of the marks of a true church the preaching of the word. God is the source of life. His words are the communication and not just speaking about it, but speaking to us, delivering that to us, communicable life. We talk about things that are communicable, such as diseases, attributes. The word of God is his communicable transference, giving of, offering, revealing that which produces life. To have life, we must have God. We must have God as God reveals himself. Where else can we go? Church, we need the word of God. We need a foundation that is built from God himself, not what men think about him. If you want life, plead for the word in your churches. Beg for the word of God to be rich and thick and constant that we might know him. A number of years ago, a man by the name of Floyd Schaefer wrote a poem. It hangs in the hallway to my office. It hangs in our assistant pastor, Corey's office. And it goes like this. Make him a minister of the word. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his typewriter and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts, broken hearts, the flippant lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our surfeited communities who knows about God. Throw him into the boxing ring with God until he learns how short his arms are. Let him come out only when he is bruised and beaten into a blessing. 
Set a time clock on him that will imprison him with thought in writing about God for 40 hours a week. Shut his garrulous, over-everthinking, non-essential thoughts. Require him to have something to say before he dares break his silence. Bend his knees in the Lonesome Valley. Fire him from the PTA and cancel his country club membership. Burn his eyes with weary study, wreck his emotional poise with worry for God, and make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk before God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone, burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets, refuse his glad hand, and put water in his gas tank of his community buggy. Give him a Bible and tie him in his pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. There are a lot of churches who would do well to put that on their pulpit search committee's requirements. Church, beg your leaders to be these men who give you a sense of God from the living word of God. Why? Because it is the power of God. To relegate scripture to anything less than what it is revealed to be the very power of God, you will forfeit the life that it produces. You will forfeit life. It's not a point of glee or joy for any of us as pastors and elders to look around at churches that are suffering and flailing and failing. There's no joy in that. But it happens all too often because they have left the source for lesser things. And there is no life there anymore. There may be a building, but there's no life. There may be a role, but there are no living members. When the word of God is stripped from us, because it alone contains the power of God, the gospel of God that leads to salvation. I want you to notice just a couple of verses back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Hopefully you're still there. I want you to notice Paul's words to young Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, Scripture, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We would say it this way in West Texas, wouldn't we? Stay by the stuff. Timothy, you know the power that is in the word of God. It led you to faith. Stay by it. Stay by it. Stay with it. Stay in it. Be faithful to proclaim it. Don't be tempted for gimmicks and fads. Don't don't substitute programs. Preach the word of God. Why? Paul says, I am, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel contained in all of the scriptures? We preach the gospel with words. All of the word of God telling the great salvation that God gives. So we are not ashamed and we are not distracted and we continue to do the one thing we've been called to do. Preach. Preach. Speak, sing, 
counsel, read, saturate yourself in the living, breathing word of God. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to do. But in doing all we have to do, we have all we'll ever need. Life, that's so one-dimensional. Yes, it is. But God is one. God is one. When we stand upon the word of God, we allow God himself to unleash his own power his own authority, his own transformation. When God speaks, things happen. I love the staccato nature of Genesis 1 and 2. God said, there was. God said, there was. Light be and light was. We've smoothed that out in English. But the Hebrew is very staccato, it's very point. Light be, light was. Separate and it separates. Why? Because of the power of God in his speech. We build ourselves as the church on the word of God, not only, not only because of what it is, the very revealed power of God, because of also what it accomplishes. Because of what it accomplishes, it does produce life. Peter is the first to admit that back in John 6. Lord, where would we go? You have words of life. Nobody else has these. This is why the church is built upon the word. The word produces life and not the word produced by the church. The church has no life apart from the word. And that is the the defining difference in, I think, our ecclesiology, as Bobby will talk about tomorrow, between us and the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says, the church will define the word. We say, to the contrary, the word defines the church. The word gives life to the church. Otherwise, it's nothing. The word creates life in us. The word brings us together where nothing else has the power to do so. We've marveled in our church recently at what God is doing and continues to do that can only be explained as a work of his own hands. Two Sundays ago, we had people in our services worshiping together from seven different nations. We're as different as night and day. I can't even communicate with all of them without a translator. But there is a joy and a life and a single-mindedness that exists among us all to love and to make much of Christ because the Word has worked in us. The word binds us together. It's astonishing, it's saddening, it's heartbreaking to watch churches grasp for life in every arena except the one alone that can produce life, the word. Jesus John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
It produces life. Secondly, it works without fail. I am a connoisseur of memes and signs. My wife took me in a store a number of years ago and they had all manner of home decor and signs and there was one sign and it had a question and I took a picture of it and saved it on my photo roll and I think about it often. And the question was simply this, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? What would you do, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And there is only one group of people to whom that question actually applies. And that's us who stand upon the word of God. Because we will try anything and we will do anything and we will go anywhere and we will preach to anyone because we know this, the word that we preach cannot fail. We are not deterred. We are not discouraged because we believe that scripture is true. What, what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 55 that my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. I can attempt anything with the word of God because it can't fail. So preach. So teach. So love your kids with the word of God. If we want fruit in our ministries to remain, let it be fruit that comes from the unfailing word of God that is liberally disseminated far and wide without shame, without lack of confidence to the shunning of every other fad and program that vie for the attention of God's people. Throw us in the study and force us to our knees to study the word of God and to communicate the word of God. The word of God must be primary because it is unfailing and everything else will fail. Third, it provides freedom. Only the word of God faithfully communicating the truth of God's person and the, his own self-revelation will ever free sinners the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the saturation of the word, it alone will set men free. Everything else we may attempt in the church outside of the centrality of the word of God ultimately only binds the conscience of men and women and produces bondage, not freedom. Every study that man can come up with that is not rooted in the teaching and the proclamation and the giving forth of the word of God will ultimately only bind your conscience to something that should not have the opportunity to do so in the church of Jesus. So we preach and teach the word that brings freedom. Jesus in John 8, 31 he answers those Jews who had believed him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Don't go away from it. Don't look at other things. Why? You will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Right? 
It not only frees, but it sanctifies us. Changes us. Strengthens us. It matures us. Jesus in his defining high priestly prayer of John 17, we know it well, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. These are my people. This is my body that I'm leaving behind, Father. So do what only you can do through the means that only you have, the self-revealing of your nature, and cleanse them, strengthen them, sanctify them, continue to set them apart as unique. For a worldly church is an oxymoron. But an otherworldly church is the truest definition of a church because we have an otherworldly source for our truth. And it changes us. The word of God, the work of the church should work in such a way that it pulls us directly in opposition to the world. To love what God loves and to do what God does, which is the very opposite of every single one of our fallen ideals, our flesh. A church that is more like the world is a church that is not in the word. It sanctifies, it also gives assurance. I think of all the sadness that I've witnessed in 21 years of pastoral ministry, I think most sadness comes from a lack of assurance of where one stands with Jesus Christ and before the Father. That battle for assurance is real. And we see it on a daily basis as Satan comes and he is the great accuser of the brethren and he seeks to rob us of assurance and rob us of joy. But what I've also observed is this, that where there is lack of assurance, there is almost certainly a lack of the word. And I don't simply mean, just read your Bible. That's poor advice to a struggling soul. Just read your Bible. Just jump in at any point. No, teach them to study the Bible. Teach them to know Christ in the word. To see God in all of his glory. Assurance doesn't come from us telling people they're right with God. Assurance comes when the word of God demonstrates to them it is so in their life. Let them learn from the word. You become by de facto nature a Protestant pope when you want other people to come to you for assurance. Turn them to the word. Let the word produce the assurance so that when you're not there and no one else is there, the word of God and the spirit of God is testifying to their flayed hearts by Satan that they belong to the master and cannot be lost. Jesus says, if you keep my words, you are my disciples. You'll be convinced that you're my disciples. You'll know that you're my disciples. There will be no doubt in your mind. So this, the power of the word, because of what it does, is why we have no choice but to root ourselves here and never to move. 
to be inflexible on this point, to be immovable about this point. We are people of the book, of the revelation of God himself to us. There is nothing else we can do in our churches that can accomplish these things. Not one. Nothing. So brothers and sisters, as we close, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs. <coughs> and let us respond with the eagerness of the Bereans to receive the word with gladness. And may God, in his word, as it flows into us, May he be glorified in his word as his word finds its way increasingly into our hearts. Receive the word with all humility, which is able to produce salvation for your souls. And convinced of these things, preach the word. Teach the word. Sing the word. Love the word of God. Father, thank you for your word. It is true and it is powerful. Thank you that by your word we know you. We know you with all confidence that passes all human understanding. So cause us, Father, now to bow before you and an open Bible. That our foundation would be made sure and true. Glorify yourself as you work it into every fiber of our being and into every crook and cranny of our churches. May the word of God bleed out of us. We pray this for Jesus' sake the very word of God to man. Amen.